Ali and to the worship team for leading us. Great to be back. Um, I was no, I did notice uh, that, I, that I was pastor of Hamilton Bible Chapel. I thought, well, we planted a church, so it seems kind of proud to name a church after yourself. So I'm glad of the clarification around about that. You didn't think it was just an ego trip for me. Um, we're going to spend some time this evening in God's Word. If you turn to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2, or if you want to turn to your index, if that's helpful to you, and that's okay as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is where we are uh, going to be this evening. Uh, we're going to think a lot about how we think, how we think okay? And uh, not what are you thinking, how are you thinking, okay? I don't know if you've ever asked the question, what are you thinking? Um, I love talking to my wife. And so sometimes I ask her, what are you thinking? And it turns out a lot. And it's what my wife is thinking. I'm not sure if that's a female trait. I think it probably is. It's like girls seem to think about a lot in tremendous detail. And um, it's like drinking water from a fire hydrant. Often when you ask the question, what are you thinking? And, and it turns out you can think about more than one subject at any one time, which is remarkable to me. Because when Alice and my wife ask me why I'm thinking, I'm scrambling around desperately trying to think of something to say so it doesn't feel like it's just totally vacant in here. Um, so not, but we're not thinking today about not about what are you thinking, but how are you thinking? What, how, is your, how does your mind work? Where does it go? What does it focus upon? How are you thinking? What are the things that inform the way your mind works and your heart operates? That's really what Ecclesiastes 2 is designed to help us to think through and to stretch us in that way. There's, so the this title is Vanity versus Clarity, the power of thinking clearly. We, it's helpful that Ali's already touched on this. There must be more than this because we are called to lives that of some significance, not significance for ourselves, but significance for Jesus. We are called to lives that are designed by God and His purposes for us to make a difference and to leave a mark upon the people we spend time with for His glory as, we, as our lives serve to point people towards Jesus. Now, that's, the flip side of that is we're often entranced by the idea of something bigger. I was interested by the pictures behind the screens here of the sandy beaches and the palm trees and stuff like that. It's all very nice. We're thinking, well, that, that seems like the one great in the holiday I had. Maybe that's what your thinking was tonight. We often have our minds gravitating towards this idea of wanting something bigger. But often that something bigger that we're looking for is something bigger for ourselves. It's something bigger for myself. The problem we often have when we think about our minds is that we tend to be entranced and fascinated by the prospect of something greater and bigger for ourselves. Ecclesiastes is a book in general, it's a reality check. That's really the purpose that it serves in God's Word. But Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 2 that we're looking at tonight, invites us to think about a bigger, about the bigger and eternity of things that God encourages us to give our hearts and our lives to. Because they are the bigger and the terrible things only God can give. So, to see this leading question, we want to just have a question just to frame our thinking around about the passage we're going to look at in a moment. The leading question today is this. What? What if the things I fill my time with can never fulfill? That's the question. What if the things I fill my time with can never fulfill me? Well, all of the earthly things, your career, your pursuit of money, or your pursuit of popularity, or your pursuit of all of these other things that you're living your life for and pushing your life towards in pursuit of, well, those things can never fulfill you. What is it you're really living for? 
read Ecclesiastes. With all that said, hopefully that's going to be effectively your way to Ecclesiastes 2. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 11 just to kind of set this up. We're going to look at the whole chapter uh, over the course of this evening uh, as we have time. So this is what God's word has to say to us. This is what Solomon writes. He said, I said in my heart, come, now I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter and is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold and fall until I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought, I bought male and female servants and then slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got sight of both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did, not keeping from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. But I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after vanity, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's pray together now, Father, we're thankful to you for what we've been able to sing to you and about you. Father, we pray that something of what we've expressed uh, about the desire in our, in our hearts for more of you and uh, to find our rest and our peace in you, to find our satisfaction and fulfillment in you, that those things would be found to be true as we sit under your word just now. As we think about what our lives are counting towards and what our lives mean, Father, we pray that you'd be helping us right now to be examining ourselves before you. Father, we pray that you would examine us, you would test us, and to try it, and to, to, to know our thoughts this evening, so that you would transform us and change us to make us more like Jesus. That's our desire, Father, that our life would count for you, that our life would count for something eternal. So, Father, you help us in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. And all those people say, Amen. Amen. So here's the first picture that Solomon gives us as he explores this picture of where we seek satisfaction in and what we seek fulfillment from. The first picture that we really have um, is of chasing the wind. We see it just towards the end of what we read there this morning, but immediately before what we started reading and in and, and, and verse 14, I've seen everything that's under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. In chapter 1, verse 14, he talks about a striving after the wind. I don't, don't know if you've ever tried to chase wind before, probably not since you were a kid. Maybe you used to try to do that. You know, kids like trying to stand in their shadow. They're trying to stand in their shadow. They're trying to catch that. It's almost as futile as that. It's a bit of paper that blows out of your hand, and you feel slightly foolish because you're chasing it, and you nearly catch it, and then and it's up to tease you, another gust of wind just blows it slightly out of your reach again. And um, it's used at a more formal occasion, that's what I tend to find. Um, it was worse when like, we used to preach in a place at air conditioning. I used to preach in a place at air conditioning when we started out as a church and we rented stuff at the university. And then this air conditioning fans immediately above my head. 
So and I had no lights on, so I would be walking around and every now and again, there was a condition would blow my sermon notes off of my Bible across there, mid sermon and kind of chasing after this. It really felt rather undignified. And it's such a great and so the picture that Solomon gives us of, of, of the chase for satisfaction and things of this earth. Oh, this idea of chasing the wind is just a great picture of that and how undignified it often leaves us feeling. I just want satisfaction. I just want to feel fulfilled. But you're looking in the wrong places is often the problem. And, 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 and so Solomon, is, as he's exploring these things, he's encouraging us to see. He's encouraging us to see the answer is if we're looking for satisfaction in earthly things and not eternal things, they were never, ever going to catch it. If you're looking for satisfaction, if you this evening are looking for satisfaction or fulfillment in earthly things rather than eternal things, you're never, ever going to catch it. So this, this evening we're going to just spend some time in Ecclesiastes 2 and I've got three day-to-day questions about day-to-day quandaries that we all face that will hopefully shine a light onto the futility of pursuing satisfaction in earthly things rather than eternal things. First question is this. Question number one, why does pleasure produce pressure? Why does pleasure produce pressure? I didn't know that, well, let's, we'll explore that this evening. Well, why does pleasure produce pr- pressure? The first test that, so really what we have in Ecclesiastes 2 is three tests that, three grids almost that Solomon runs his life through. The first test is, he says, I will test you with pleasure. Hands up in favour of that test. We're going to test you with fun. Okay, test away. Doesn't feel like much of an exam when that happens. Um, do a trial by fire or trial by fun. Fun, fun, fun. Hands up in favor of trial by fun. Okay, we want trial by fun. It's not a bad thing, I choose fun. You say, I'm going to test myself with pleasure. And then we're all saying, well, that sounds horrible. Uh, we don't think of pleasure as a test. But what pleasure tests is, it tests our priorities and it often betrays the principles upon which our life is founded. It's the person who goes to the party and hates every moment but pretends they're enjoying it honestly. Who chooses a social occasion. It's the person who chooses the social occasion they ought not to have gone to and feels the need to passionately defend that decision. It's the person on a Monday morning who is defending their hangover heroically about how much fun it was all the time feeling miserable and horrible and slightly guilty and shamefaced about how they behave on the weekend. So I mean, in, 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 in my job, this job and jobs before, I, and in, in, in friendships and relationships I've had, I've met lots of people who are party champions who have been down the line and left reflecting how poor their choices were. People say they just want to be happy or to live a little, yet the suggestion here is that the pursuit of those things in the wrong places is to live little and to live futilely. Behold, this also was vanity. The picture of vanity is a vapor. So if you think about when you bought last night, the kettle hands up if you made a cup of tea for yourself today. Hands up if you've been doing so, you've been able to do so for the other person in your house. Okay, a couple of us. I think it was just Ali and I were well prepared for this evening. <laughs> last time you brought a kettle, so Ecclesiastes talks about the word vapor. It's talking, well, it's talking about steam, but actually in Ecclesiastes 1, it talks not just about vanity, of, not just about vapor, it talks about vanity of vanities or vapor of vapor. So 
this even comes out, you can't even you can see. But then there's stuff that you can't even see, which is there's still moisture there, but you can't even see it. It's the, the vapor of the paper is not even it's not even got the kind of consistency of the, the steam you immediately see when you do something that's like boiling the kettle. It's a, the, the stuff that's in the ether that you can't even see is so futile you can't even tangibly experience it or see it. You see, this pursuit of, of satisfaction in parties and in drinking and in pleasure is vapor, it's vanity. He's giving us the punchline. He's giving us the punchline ever. Enjoyment for the sake of enjoyment is empty. Fun for the sake of fulfillment is flowing. <coughs> so how do you mean? Well, look, look what he says. He, he, t- he turns to the topic of, of laughter, right? I, I, I say of laughter, verse 2, it is mad with pleasure. What use is it? To take laughter. Well, you can laugh in a little while and it'll be infectious. So if you start laughing, you, you get fed the giggles, and you, something tends to spread. But if you keep on laughing, and keep on laughing, and keep on laughing, it starts to get a little weird, right? It starts to sound a little bit mad, you know, it's okay, a little bit of laughter is a good thing. A little bit more laughter than you ought to have is just freaky for people. You laugh for a while, it becomes infectious, but if you keep doing it, well, pretty quickly becomes disturbing. It's mad. You know, the way they laugh and can't stop fit to get with tears incapable of speech type laughing. That's, that's a good thing. God has given us that to enjoy and to express joy. But if he goes further than that, then, well, that's a different thing. He said, if laughter is mad and with pleasure, what use is it? That's a question. And, he's, and, and this, he comes on to the, the big question. What is the ultimate and eternal point of enjoying yourself? When you look at your life and you think about your life and you think about the things that you enjoy and the way that you enjoy them and why you enjoy them, what is not just the point of it, but what is the eternal point of it? Does it give you an opportunity to point to God as the giver of all good gifts? Are you taking that opportunity? Does it, does it give you an opportunity to testify to God's common grace that is extended to everyone and He gives us something to enjoy? Does it give you an opportunity to say, yes, I enjoy them, but they're not the thing I get greatest joy from because that is the Lord and what He's done for me. So what, not just what is the point of enjoying yourself, but what is the ultimate and eternal, eternal point of enjoying yourself? Solomon, Solomon is said to try and figure that out. And if we're honest, most of us are giving our lives to try to discover that. Whether well, to escape the emptiness, or because we think we need to journey this life with joy, so we indulge ourselves in a bunch of different ways. First flame port of call he turns to it, maybe no surprise. I search with my heart to cheer my body with wine. He turns to alcohol in the first instance, and how often that would be true, certainly in our Western Scotland culture, that that would be the first place that people would turn to. Whether for the purpose of socialization or celebration. Just as, equally just as much for escapism or addiction on the other. See, alcohol, alcohol is often used to try and alter or improve the sense of our reality. We, that's why we talk about drowning our sorrows and, or drinking away the pain. Or maybe we use it in a little phrase, Dutch courage. A lot of times you write Dutch. Yeah. Maybe they're brave folks. I don't know. Maybe they, they just need drink to be brave. I don't really know about Maybe to help us loosen up, maybe to help us forget, maybe that's another reason 
by people who turn to drink. People often drink alcohol because they think it will make themselves or their circumstances feel different. And, they, and, and, and you see the pattern that's emerging here, the things we pursue, pleasure, right, are often things that replace the function that Jesus is designed to have in our life, the thing that he is designed. So the things that should make you feel different about yourselves and your circumstances should not be alcohol, it should be Jesus. You think, people think that, the alter, that, that, that that alteration will make their lives feel more meaningful, but really all it does is create a mirage. He says he doesn't drink it, he didn't drink himself. Senseless, he remains sober enough uh, to figure out. So my heart's still getting me with wisdom. So there's not a lot about wisdom exercise and almost all of that, and that would certainly be an important thing to bear in mind if you are prone to drinking alcohol to maintain, make sure you're able to do so with wisdom. He didn't make himself senseless, he didn't get sober enough to figure out if there was meaning in the pleasures of the party or the social pursuits that he was engaging in. His conclusion is this, it didn't really change how foolish it is to live after these things. So he's left wondering, what is it that's good for people to invest their lives in? So he tried some more. But we try some more, and that's the reality. We have one life of limited days. You have one life of limited days, and the question which nags is simply this. What is it that your life is counting towards? So to try and find an answer, Solomon exercises his creative instincts. And his creative instincts are slightly more beyond the scope of mine. His first instinct, right? my first creative instinct is maybe to build some Lego with my kids. Um, his was to, to, to design and build houses. Go, go for you. Good for you, King Solomon. He, he made great works, even if he did say so himself. So he designed and built houses, then he tried to develop green fingers, he spent some time in the garden. He planted vineyards and big gardens and parks, and in the vegetable patch and grew some apples, that kind of thing. He examined stuff he gathered, as we're just walking through these verses here. He examined stuff he gathered. He, he, he took a little adventure, he, 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 he had slaves and he had heritage and flocks and he had silver and gold things. He had all of the lifestyle gadgets he wanted, he had all of the prosperity, Im- the, the, the prosperity image that he wanted, business was booming, the vibe of the royal house was rocking, was, there was lots of, he had lots of stuff. That, right? He said, so I've got this inventory of stuff, so I pursue pleasure, I pursue alcohol, and, and I've built stuff, and I've grown stuff, and I've gathered stuff, and then I tried to party tonight, sex and rock and roll at my disposal, cigarettes and concubines he talks about here. Do you see how things are not so different and where people look for satisfaction has not really changed? A big house with beautiful things and food and drink on the table and access to sex and entertainment. All of those things are still the things that he, he was looking for satisfaction in. And still, he came to the same conclusion. None of those things were satisfying. And it wasn't as if he was kind of going, he was living some kind of second class existence, or these things were in some ways less. Look at verse 9, it says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. I am more and better than anyone else in Jerusalem. 
And still we didn't satisfy him. Still I'm looking around. And still I'm trying to discern with all wisdom to see if these would deliver on their promises. And they didn't. But my eyes and desire that indulge, I kept my heart from no pleasure. You see, the problem we have is we see pleasure becoming the purpose for our toil. We live for the weekend. We long for the me time. We see pleasure becoming the purpose for our toil and legitimizing the pleasure we pursue. We say, I deserve this because of my toil. So we waste our time on Netflix and social media and absence and lying long and dead. Think of pleasure as a way of relieving pressure, but what it actually does is create pressure when we make it the priority we are prone to. How do you mean? I'm glad you asked. Pleasure produces pressure because, because if it becomes an end in itself, you're constantly facing the question of what happens when the fun stops. Listen to Solomon, listen to what Solomon says in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He said, I looked at all I had left at the end of it all, and then I realized that all I had amounted to pretty much nothing. So you're trying to find your value. If you're trying, if you're receiving, try to find your value and pleasure. That is vanity, it's empty. Yet we allow pleasure to define us in many ways. We pursue, well, we try to make a list of reasons we pursue pleasure. We pursue for escapism. When we pursue for escapism, we use it to hide from reality. Pleasure allows us to suspend normal reality and pretend that life is all that we hoped it would be. As a family, we got to the awesome opportunity this summer to. And go to Disney World in Orlando. It was a once in a lifetime and once in a lifetime. And it's like the definition of the suspension of reality. On Thursday night, we landed in Orlando at the airport on Friday morning at half past eight. We were bringing a ferry boat to the Magic Kingdom. That's like the definition of a, a, a total change of scene. Okay, we're surrounded by cartoon characters walking around about us. And there's an aspect of escapism and wanting to find a means of escape, and that's what pleasure dangles in front of us. We use it to hide from reality. Our enjoyment, we hold out for pleasure. The weekend is the worth it part of our week because that's the light at the, light at the end of the tunnel when something feels good and feels right finally. But the problem with the weekend is that Monday keeps coming and the weekend doesn't really change anything. Our pleasure is really just like a pause button that doesn't remove the problem, and so we begin to feel more pressure. Why isn't the pleasure working? Why am I having more fun? Why isn't this giving me any joy? Pleasure produces pressure because it invites us to look for rest and release in the wrong places. Pleasure produces pressure because there is always a sense of it being momentary and therefore mercenary. If I'm taking what I can while I can, then, I, then I'm not making what I could for the things I should. Your life is decided to count for something bigger and greater and eternal. And pleasure can often distract and distort that reality. We need to understand that indulgence is an outworking of our pursuit of independence. But the bottom line is this, I cannot satisfy myself. J.C. Rowling, 
Christian preacher from the late 19th century said this, all that pleases, I think it's up on the screen for you, all that pleases for a while is not real pleasure. All that pleases for a while is not real pleasure. Church pleasure is not real pleasure. The real pleasure, the true pleasure that only God can offer you through Jesus Christ is an eternal pleasure. And, he, and that he pleases forever. Psalm 16 verse 11 really reflects that reality. You may known to me the path of life in your presence, in God's presence, in His presence, there is fullness of joy. If you're looking for pleasure, that's where to look. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So pleasure at its fullest and at its most forever is what God would offer you in Jesus. That's where He wants you to look. That's where that's the pleasure that forms the foundation of a life that counts for something eternal. God's design, God's design for you is for Jesus to be your escape and to be the one that you rest in. And, if, and, and, and therefore it's no surprise if pleasure is not rooted in the Lord, the, the result will be a sense of the crushing pressure of life. So that's question one. I'll do question a bit shorter, I promise. But why does pleasure produce pressure? The second question is this. Why do sensible people end up stressed? section verses 12 to 17 and this is the second thing that this question of, of wisdom and being sensible that's what Solomon wants to do again next verses 12 to 17 so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly what, for what can the man do who comes after the king only what's already been done then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness the wise person has his eyes in his head but the fool walks in darkness and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them then I say in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I, been, have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, that this also is a vanity. For of, the wise as of the, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what has gone under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and his striving after one. And at time, with these cheery thoughts, you're glad you came out on Sunday evening. But there's something important for us to grapple with here. What is it we're living for and why? How are we thinking about the life that God has given us? Why do so second question, why do sensible people end up stressed? You wouldn't think they would, but they do. Some of the most stressed out people the most uptight people are the most sensible people that I know. Are you the same? You know, the, most, you know, the most uptight people are the ones who are most sensible. The ones who, their life seems most ordered. Their desk is perfectly tidy. Unlike mine, which is utter chaos. I'm not sure that's sensible. I'm state of wisdom and sensibleness. We'll be coming to that later, maybe. But the, 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 the desire for control that has often come with being wise or sensible often creates a massive issue for people. Why do, why do they end up stressed? Why do they go from middle of the road to meltdown in a few manic minutes? So, so Solomon says, having indulged himself and lived a little on the wild side, he tries something different. Worldly wisdom. And that's really popular today, you know, is that the people who grew up watching Oprah Winfrey on TV, I'm going to ask a show of hands right about that. The people who love the sound by the cliche, the fortune, you know, actually, people whose Facebook timeline 
looks as if they accidentally bulk bought fortune cookies. Do you know what, have you got a friend like that? They accidentally bulk up and there's only one a day. And there's their there's lesson for the day. There's their cliche, there's their sound bite for the day. He tried to live sensibly, he said, so I tried to consider wisdom and madness and folly, and I tried it all. I tried it all. And the conclusion being that anyone who comes after a king with all that he had at his disposal is destined to merely repeat or fall within the boundaries of all this, the same exploration that Solomon is doing. What he's basically saying is, you can try and follow me, you can try and do these things, but I'm pretty sure you're going to come up with the same answer that I have, that these things are ultimately meaningless apart from God. In other words, if Solomon struggled to make sense of this, like then you and I are more than, more than slightly likely to struggle to do so as well. He also concludes that if living a mad life based around pleasure doesn't get to done, then wisdom is certainly more likely to. He understands that there's more gain in wisdom than folly, much like there's more benefit than light from light than darkness. So what seems to be happening here in the choice between two futile options he turns his attention to the least futile of the two choices. Because although the way of wisdom doesn't always help us make sense of life, at least we have some idea of what we're getting into. Wisdom at least helps, wisdom at least helps us see our weakness, unlike the fool who walks in darkness. Yet the outcome, even in loving wisely, like Solomon did, the, Solomon's conclusion of loving sensibly versus loving stupidly, of loving wisely versus loving in folly is exactly the same. The end result is the same. We can't take whatever we are living for with us, unless it's Jesus that we're living for. We can't, unless we can't take the everyday things we're living for, the only things that will count beyond this life are the eternal things that we invest in. So why do sensible people end up stressed? Well, because of this. What happens to the fool will happen to the wise also. What happens to the person whose desk is a mess? Well, the same thing that happens to the person who has all their pencils perfectly sharpened. So what's the point of being wise? He sees that even the slight momentary advantages of living a sensible life are of limited benefit. They are vanity. They are vapor. Well, so what's the point of living sensibly? Because it's the same, in the same way as the Fool leaves no lasting legacy, neither does the one who lives sensibly. All will be long forgotten, that's what it says. Your desire for control. Do you know a control freak? Are you a control freak? Your desire for control has the sense of the desertion of control. We want to give the impression of keeping it all together. But with that comes a creeping sense that things could come apart at any moment. Think about your loved ones. They are what the term describes. You love them and you want them to be well and around and maybe selfishly once they're living because you don't know what you would do without them. And you live with an nagging understanding that your, your, your desire for control struggles to come to terms with this nagging understanding that you have that someday something is going to happen to them so you want to protect them, you try to provide for them, or you help them know how much you prize them, but you know that at some point they're going to need help that you can't give them, or they're going to encounter something that you can't control. Or you think about parenting. 
And you ask the question, why is it so hard? And I ask people for kids. It's like, I feel like getting a lot of soothing counsel for all some things in our eyes just to get in the front door. It's like, there's stats where it's like, we came to go and it's like, they moved to four different corners of the house and somebody's hiding in a cupboard. So why is parents, so think about parents, why is it so hard? It's so hard because you want to feel in control. And, and your kids are, are less, and you want to build a fence around your kids and keep them away from people and our experiences or situations that will hurt them or harm them. But before you know it, they have phones and independence and more frightening opinions and that kind of thing. They're out of your hands, and, and it seems like they're out of your hands before they are out of your heart. I hear somebody describe. Having kids, having kids that are having your heart walking around outside your body. Isn't that a great picture? Having your heart walking around outside your body. You want to put a fence you want to protect it. You can't forever. You long for control. And those are just in your relationships. Not to mention things like your career or your, or your job prospects, your personal health and those kind of things. And when we become fixated on that, we become like Solomon in verse 17. So I hated my life. Sounded like a teenager for a moment. Hated my life. As much like indulgence is a dream, the dependability is disappointing. So when you realize you can't trust, when you try to deliver yourself from where do you turn? sensible people end up stressed because life will always throw something at us that makes us struggling out of You end up stressed because life will always throw something at you that leaves you struggling out of your death. And the question is, who are you going to swim to? Who are you going to cling to? Are you going to keep on chasing after the things that you have as a priority in your very well-ordered life? Are you going to swim to Jesus and cling to him? And seek wisdom from him in terms of how to face the out of control things that life is thrown at you. Sensible people end up stressed because when you put your sense of security and your stability and your world falls apart, or when something happens that exceeds your capacity, what are you left with? Struggles of this life are designed to start within you a deeper longing for what awaits you in the next one. Problems of our existence are designed by God in your life to stimulate in you a believing confidence as you hold on to God's great and eternal promises in Jesus. Your desire for control is a con. And encouragement of Ecclesiastes too is to turn to Jesus. Because there's no real security and there's no true stability apart from the salvation that Jesus offers. You will have most peace when you are most close to the most high. And it's because you're looking somewhere else that you're stressed. So, why does pleasure produce pressure? Why do sensible people end up stressed? Why does work, final question, why does work make me worried? Are we doing for today? Okay, can we finish that? Now, everybody says now. Okay, let's let's just look at work really quickly. Okay, the final section, the vanity of toil. I know you already feel as if work is being anyway, so I kind of feel as if this is this is cheap point to the end of the message. 
Let's just read verses 18 to the end of the chapter just to, to, to finish our work here. I hated all my toil and, and which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Anyone had an employee who's taken over a job after you like that, then just, we're just going to mess up. And who knows whether it will be wise or a fool? If you will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun, this also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labours under the sun, because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity of great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Amen to that, everybody says. Even in the night his heart does not rest, this also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity. And striving after the wind. So why does work make me worry? He really starts the answer to this. Why does work make me worry? Because we can't keep it. We can't keep it. What we produce won't last because we can't take what makes with us and we're never to never be sure that we're not going to pass on our hard labor, the, the fruit of our hard labor to somebody who doesn't know what to do with it. I work and I work and I work and I work. This is what he's saying. I work and I work and I work. And then I pass the baton to whoever fills my role, sits in my chair, or in Solomon's case, occupies the throne after him. And as we see, if you look at the history of Israel, that was a kind of, yeah, that wasn't a sure thing. And who knows whether he will be wise or foolish. The faith of whoever we work for rests in the capacity of someone else. Do you see what creates pressure in this life? Do you see why we end up stressed out? Do you see the source of our worry? It's, it's again because we want to feel in control. When you experience either pressure or stress or worry or disappointment or despair, it's because it's beginning to dawn on you that you are not as in control as you think you are or as you want to be. And either being in control of your life is at best a theoretical concept and a worst to call it. So verse 20, he says, I turned about and gave my heart to despair. Frustration and the fragility of all we try to forge in this, in this life. Why? Because it wouldn't be in our hands to depend on us forever. And even when you think about work as Solomon does here, and that project you've worked hard on, but ultimately relies on the work of someone else in another department to finish it, that promotion you got to give you a ringside seat to someone potentially ruining that precious piece of work that you built your reputation upon. It's understanding the life in many ways, the work in particular, is like a game of musical chairs and when the music stops, you know the potential for you to be left without a seat at the table, without a sense of control and without seeing what happens from that point on is high. What makes us worry because we know that the sense of place and significance that we have in that won't last forever. So if you're taking your identity from your work rather than from Jesus, if you're taking your identity from what you do rather than from what Jesus has done for you, then you're going to be in problems. Solomon reflects on all, all what it's like to toil with wisdom, knowledge, skill, and leave the fruit of it to be enjoyed by someone who doesn't have any idea what it costs to get to the, into the place where they inherited it and they benefit from it. In verse 23 is a handy verse to put your desk at work. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. You shouldn't put that at your desk. Counted as you might be. Well, it's a helpful reminder. 
that that's not who your identity is to come from. That's not who your eternal destiny depends upon. Work for what lasts. We are made for pleasure and wisdom and work that is rooted in and reliant upon our relationship with Jesus. There is nothing better for Solomon to enjoy pleasure and benefit from the fruit and wisdom and toil. Solomon realises that this kind of experience though isn't necessarily the norm. So we make the mistake of thinking we can be satisfied, fulfilled, and find enjoyment apart from God. But Solomon realizes and says to us really clearly, God's word says to us today, apart from God, who can eat or have enjoyment? If you're looking for fulfillment, if you're looking for satisfaction, if you're looking for joy and meaning in your life, the only place to look is to him. And you shall change yourself every time you look to something else or something else. When we understand the end to which we were all designed, we see that God offers us wisdom and knowledge and joy. That's what God wants to give you. So, when we say there must be more than this, that's what, God, that, that's what living for God will stir within you. Wisdom, what to do, knowledge, how to do it, enjoy what's truly worth living for. Do you know what it is? How do you think about your life? How do you think about your life? Do you think about it as how can I maximize every minute of every day, of every year for the glory of God? How can I give myself with all that I am and all that I have to point people towards Jesus as I show He is alone my prime and ultimate treasure and satisfaction? So let me leave you with a question. What if I spend what a question for yourself, a question for myself? What if I spend my time seeking God and serving God rather than looking for satisfaction in something other than God? What if you spend your time seeking God and serving God rather than looking for satisfaction in something other than God? How would God use you to change the world around about you? How would, how would God use that response to his word, the sleeper, to transform how you experience your life? And how you think about it. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would stir within us a desire to be satisfied in nothing other than Jesus. Father, we recognize we're often distracted, we're prone to wonder, we're prone to look to other things and seek meaning and fulfillment in things other than Him. Father, we recognize that so much of our identity is tied up in what we do and why we do it. So Father, help us to be fueled by the identity that Jesus has given us as adopted sons of a heavenly Father who loves us and sent His Son to die on a cross for us. Help that to be the thing that defines us. Help that to be the thing that drives us. Help that to be the thing that directs how we live our lives and how we think about our lives. Father, we recognize that our minds are often distracted by so many things as we are bombarded by the message of this world. Father, we pray that in these moments you be quiet in our hearts and help us to look and gaze and be transfixed once more by Jesus and what you promise us in Him. And that we would find our pleasure and that we would find our meaning and that we would seek to labor for all the things that we in Him. In Jesus' name. Amen.